wasn't that sick? Uh, <laughs> I feel like anything I'm going to say is going to be worse than that. So um, we've hit the peak. It's all downhill from here. Get excited. No, uh, I'm really excited to start Exodus with you guys. My name is Brian, one of the pastors here at the Summit. Thanks so much for being here. Cannot wait to jump into this book with you. Before we do that, I have one more announcement um, that I wanted to let you know about. Uh, in anticipation of the family gathering that Andy talked about this Wednesday, this Wednesday, so like three days from now, uh, we are going to do an elder-led prayer night, kind of in anticipation. You know, the family gathering, we kind of talk about, this is where we feel like God's taking us. Um, but we feel like we want to start building in the rhythm of asking God to speak before we make these decisions. And so uh, we're going to gather together Wednesday night. Um, it's not going to be the super organized production or anything. We're going to get together and pray. We don't even have a slide for it. That's how unimpressive uh, it's going to be, but I think it'll be really, really good. Uh, we won't do child care. If you want to have your kids there, that's totally fine. Um, but yeah, come join us, and uh, we'll just be praying for an hour, seven to eight, right? Any other details? Good? Okay. Thanks. That as well. Okay. Um, so... When I was in college, uh, the first class of my first semester in college was an uh, introduction to classical music class. And uh, lest you think I'm like this highly cultural person, I had to take it. Like it was one of those required classes. I did not want to take it. And I went in absolutely kicking and screaming. And uh, I get there, and on my first day of my first class of college ever, the professor is not there. Uh, And not only that, but the school has no idea where the professor is also. Like he was this German guy. He had gone back to Germany for summer break, and he just never came back. And uh, they had no idea where he was. There was no explanation. Um, I still actually don't know to this day where this guy was. But the school scrambles, and they get together this uh, rotating group of reluctant graduate students to basically fill the gap and do these series, uh, do these uh, series of lectures. And uh, it was the worst. It like totally confirmed all my objections to taking an introduction to classical music uh, class where, you know, this poor grad student would get up and give this monotone lecture like, Beethoven was born this year, he died this year, he wrote his symphony in this year, class dismissed. And then, you know, some other reluctant grad student would do that about Bach, and then Mozart, and then Chopin, and on and on and on it went. It was the worst. And it went on for six weeks until uh, my professor was found. He all of a sudden was back. Uh, Nobody knew where he was. And I'll never forget, he came back for this first class and he walked in the room. He gave no explanation for where he was. He didn't even apologize for missing the first six weeks of the class. But in the thickest German accent, I will not try to reenact whatsoever because you'll lose all respect for me. Uh, He yells at us and says, I have been hearing what you've been doing and it is a travesty. Great Art, that which is beautiful, is not meant to be just talked about, but it is meant to be experienced. Close your eyes. And then I was like, what's going to happen? Like, is this how I die? Like, what's going on? Like, like why am I closing my eyes? So, he, so I, I don't close my eyes because, you know, I value my life. And I'm like, what is he doing? He dims the light. And then I'm like, now I'm really concerned. And then uh, he walks over to the sound system and he starts playing over the, uh, the sound system uh, Mozart, Mozart's Requiem. And... Um, You know, there's certain moments in our lives that are so impactful and certain moments that are so beautiful. Uh, You can remember what room you're in, what you're wearing, where you're sitting in that room. And uh, that moment uh, was very distinct in my life to that degree. And I don't know, like, again, I'm not a huge classical music connoisseur or anything like that, but it was so impactful, actually. Uh, When I write, I only listen to two albums and repeat, so my brain doesn't get too uh, confused when I write. And uh, one of the two albums I I listen to is Mozart's Requiem. So I've probably listened to that like 10,000 times, uh, all stemming from that moment. Again, lest you think I'm super cultured, the other one is electronic music. So uh, (laughs) I just just know that, okay? Don't think too much of me uh, in this. But I don't know, in that line that he said really stuck with me, too, like, that would 
which is beautiful, that which is great art, is not meant to just be talked about, but it's meant to be experienced. And it's really that that's the driving motivation behind me really wanting to start the book of Exodus just by kind of jumping right into the story and being swept up into the story. Um, you know, I, I'm not completely opposed to this, but I was trying to see how have other people taught through Exodus before. And a lot of times what it'll start with is a couple of weeks of sort of archaeological and historical background about kind of just talking about the story without actually working through the story. And, and like, thank goodness for the work of historians and archaeologists who help us see, like, this happened to real people in real history, and we can, like, uh, objectively actually believe that. But I, I just, I don't know. I think... Um, that which is beautiful is meant to be experienced. And so I feel like the most appropriate way to start this series is just by jumping into Exodus uh, 1-1 and being kind of brought into this great symphony, one of the most beautiful stories of, really in the history of the world. Um, now, all that's to say, let me do one more thing before we jump in. Um, I, I really, I just felt the burden to say this. Um, I hope you understand that as we start this one-year journey in Exodus, um, this is not just a great opportunity, but it's actually a great privilege. And you really, we as a church are getting into a very ancient tradition where People who have been maybe suffering or scared or frightened um, or experienced tragedy, uh, both at an individual level as well as at a societal level as well, have probably turned to the book of Exodus more than any other book in the history of the world. Um, it's been this book that's sort of been a, a bedrock, like a foundation in really troubling and frightening times. And, you know, you go all the way back to in our own country, back to the 1700s, like when the U.S. declared independence from Great Britain, John Adams, Thomas Jefferson, and Benjamin Franklin actually designed the first national seal. It didn't get accepted, but the first national seal that was proposed actually was an image of the parting of the Red Sea that came right from the book of Exodus. You fast forward to the 1800s, and slaves who were trying to kind of like ask the question, is there any hope? Is there going to be an overturn of this unjust system? Are we going to continue to be people's property? Would secretly gather in rooms, and they would proclaim the story of the Exodus back to one another, and people would preach stories of the Exodus to them as well to give hope and say, no, God does care, and he can overthrow wicked systems, and he is close to the oppressed, and he does identify with the marginalized. You fast forward to the 1960s with the Civil Rights Movement, and the book of Exodus was probably the book of the Bible that was mentioned the most, and just encouraging people to endure and really understand just times. Martin Luther King Jr. drew from the book of Exodus again and again and again. In fact, one of his uh, famous talks, I've been to the mountaintop, uh, where he was being very vulnerable and talking about how he kind of wanted to quit and he wanted to endure in the midst of um, like really, really troubling times. He said uh, what he longed for is that I would watch God's children in their magnificent trek from the dark dungeons of Egypt through and across the Red Sea and through the wilderness and on toward the promised land. So and this is a, not just kind of a, a great story we're being swept into. I feel like it's a great privilege that we are entering into. And I just, yeah, like we as a church are now entering into a sacred tradition that we have not done uh, before. So you ready to do this? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. Exodus 1, 1. These. All right, stop there. Um, <laughs> uh, some of you are like, is this going to take like six hours every sermon? Yes, it is. Don't complain about it. I warned you, okay? Um, no, we take like we try to work through the Bible as much as possible. We won't be able to go as in-depth with this as we did with Mark, but the first word of this is really important. Actually, if you translated uh, the, the Hebrew literally in verse 1, it would be like, and these, or and, uh, and this, which and is a really weird way to like start a book, isn't it? Like, it's because this is not the beginning of a new story. It is a continuation of a prior story. What's important to understand is the first five books of the Bible are something called the Pentateuch. You want to say that with me? The Pentateuch. And you can say that this week, and then people will be like, wow, they're smart. And you don't have to say anything else. Just say that word. And you'll impress a bunch of people this week. So the Pentateuch 
It means five-part book, and it was written by a guy named Moses. We'll meet Moses next week. Jesus regularly affirms that Moses was the author of this portion of Scripture when he quotes these portions of Scripture, as, as Moses said, as well as if you read Luke 24, he actually parts, he calls this part of the Bible, these five books, uh, just Moses. That's, that, that's what it is that he calls it. So this is, Exodus is the second part in sort of a five-part book called the Pentateuch. Now, the first part is a book called Genesis. Genesis means beginnings, and we've actually taught through Genesis in uh, 2012, it was. We called it Stories of Grace, because again, the theme of Genesis is how the story of the relationship between God and man has always been one of grace. And Genesis, it really accomplishes two big things. The first is it kind of tells you where the world came from and why is the world the way it is today. Uh, that's the kind of one of the big things that Genesis does. And then all of a sudden, it shifts its attention from kind of a universal scale to an individual scale where it tells us how a family came to be. Okay, so how the world came to be and then how a family came to be called Israel. And Israel is a really important family because God says, I'm going to make you a great nation. Through you, the ends of the earth will be blessed. And most significantly, through the line of Israel will come a man named Jesus who will put the world back together in the way that it was meant to be. He will be the Messiah. That's what we spent the last two years learning about in the gospel according to Mark. And at the very end of Genesis, uh, Israel has grown to like 70 people. Uh, this family's grown to about 70 people, and they've immigrated into Egypt because of a favorable political relationship between somebody in the family, a guy named Joseph, and the Pharaoh of Egypt to the day. That's all you need to know uh, leading up now, at least for 30 seconds. That's like the, uh, you know, previously in the Pentateuch. Uh, that's like, that's, that's uh, you know, read it. Like, I'm not saying that's all you need to know, but, but read it. But for our time now, uh, that's all I'll say about that. Okay, so these, ready for the second word? You think you can handle this? Uh, okay, we'll go faster. Are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. So that's what we're talking about. Each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph, that's what we just mentioned, was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. So we're generations now removed from Joseph entering into Egypt and having this favorable political relationship with the Pharaoh. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now, the kind of idea of this first chapter that we're going to walk through is like, these are very dark days that are the backdrop for the exodus taking place. These are the darkest of days. And the question is, well, how in the world is that? the case. And verse 8 starts to give us a glimpse into how this is uh, the darkest of days. Now look at verse 8. There arose uh, a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now what's important for you to understand here, um, again, this is where it's like, some of you think the Bible is this like antiquated book, particularly the Old Testament. It's not. It's not whatsoever. And things work the same way back then as they do today. So what happens? Okay, it's not that mysterious. You have a transition of power. One king dies, another king takes power. And what happens anytime in any governmental system when there's a transition of power? All of a sudden, the ramifications of who that king does and doesn't like spill into and impact everybody. So there might be certain groups of people that with the prior king were kind of in his good graces. A new king takes place. I don't know you. Actually, I'm highly suspicious of you, and they experience kind of the consequences uh, of that. And you look at any time in the history of the United States where, you know, presidents switch off, we just experienced this, right? Uh, all of a sudden, the kind of the policy can change very, very quickly. That's not a political statement. It's just the reality, right? Policy changes very, very quickly. And Israel is on the other side of a significant policy change. Now, what is that policy change? Well, it's important for you to understand that historians believe around this time in the world, uh, Egypt is going through a very difficult transition as a nation where they were once uh, a global superpower, and now they're kind of 
becoming something less than that. They're not sure who they're going to be, but they're very frightened, and they're trying to figure out, like, how do we give explanation to this? Now, again, this is not uh, happening in a vacuum. Consistently throughout the history of the world, when countries have gone through transitions like this, people get very, very scared, and the most frequent thing countries do, actually, when they get very, very scared historically, is they look at an ethnic minority, label them as intrinsically dangerous, and then oppress them in the name of national security. That seems like an incredibly politically loaded statement. I know, okay? And you're like, what does he say? It's like, just settle down, okay? It's just, I'm just telling you, historically, that has happened, okay? So you go into 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, German culture. Germany was once a global superpower. All of a sudden loses the First World War. They're trying to give some sort of explanation of why are we losing influence. And the ethnic minority of the Jews are a great person to kind of blame, great group of people, to blame it on and they start killing them. And our own country isn't immune from this as well. Let's just go into 1940s American culture. There's a bombing at Pearl Harbor. And all of a sudden, the President of the United States, FDR, actually signs an executive order banning people of Japanese ancestry from living on the West Coast. Did you know this? Like, there was an executive order, and by the way, not just an executive order, but it was, its constitutionality was upheld by the Supreme Court of the United States. You can read about this. Go to Wikipedia, and I know most stuff isn't true on there, but that's true. And, and saying that if you're of Japanese ancestry, because of your ethnicity, you're so intrinsically dangerous, you cannot live in the West Coast unless you live in particular camps. And this happened even in our own state of Colorado as well. So again, I'm not trying to give these like politically loaded things. I'm just trying to help you see what's happening here is something that's been happening consistently throughout the history of the world. Now let me, again, so you don't seem like I'm kind of coming at this, trying to make secret political jabs. Uh, let me just kind of show you what's happening here uh, in the text. Um, all right. So what we see happen is first, kind of the policy change results in an oppression and enslaving of Israel in the name of national security. Um, and again, I wish I could almost choose different language because I know those are loaded terms. I don't know how to describe it any other way. Um, so look at verse 9. And he, that's the king, said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So that's it, right? Okay, there's this group of people, they're growing, they're dangerous, they could rise up and they could take us over. We got to get these people under control or our very livelihood in the state of the nation uh, is at stake. So he executes, starts to execute this plan. Therefore, verse 11, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Um, which in some ways is kind of valid, right? Like if you had this plan to sort of execute this genocide, usually in genocides, the numbers of people get smaller, not bigger. Um, and like Israel is growing. And they're like, what the heck is going on? Now, if they were humble and repentant, the story of the Exodus could end in chapter one, right? Like, and they realize it was bad to kill people systemically, and God blessed the nation, and everything was okay. But here's the crazy thing, is a lot of times in our sin, even when God is showing us it's wrong, we endure in it, and we get stupid about it. And Egypt was stupid, just like we get stupid about this as well. And the king in particular is dumb. He has a lot of power and a lot of stupidity, and that's a very bad combination. And all of a sudden, he like doubles down on this and starts going harder to like, I'm going to systemically eliminate these people. It says, so they, so they made kind of the process of slavery even harder. They gave them harder work. Verse 13, for they, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Now it gets worse. 
you'd be like, man, how does it get worse? It gets a lot worse. Um, again, kind of nas- national tragedies um, are not a contest, uh, but it gets even darker, believe it or not, because what they start doing is not just enslaving the adults, but they actually start systemically killing their babies. Um, and it, it's awful. It's just, okay, look at this in verse 15. So it's like the king is trying to kill these people. It's not working. They're getting bigger. So it's like, okay, well, let's just cut them off of the source. Let's kill their children. So it's verse 15. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. Now, this story happened to real people in real history. And the tragedy of the scene, I mean, it should just... Like, it should break your heart. Um, you know, just trying to put yourself back in that day where it's like, you or somebody you love gets pregnant, and there's like no rejoicing. Because it's like, well, um, you know, there's not ultrasounds back then, so you don't know the gender. Um, but either way, it's a lose lose scenario. So it's like, okay, if it's a girl, the let her live. Now, why? Because the Egyptians were great people? No, 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 no. Why would they let the girls live? Because the girls can be used, right? They can be sold. They can be trafficked. They can be, you know, they can breed the Israel right out of the world. The boys, though, are seen as a threat, right? Boys could join the army. They could fight. They could kill. Kill the boys. And can you imagine, I mean, just like finding out that you're pregnant, find out somebody that you love is pregnant. And for nine months, just being like, is it going to be a boy or is it going to be a girl? And when it comes time to give birth, there's no rejoicing but only tears because the girl is taken away and used and trafficked like a consumable item. A boy is killed, and not just killed, but killed there on the birth stool. It's like this is the context in which the exodus begins. You think it couldn't get worse, but it does. Is everybody encouraged and ready to spend a year in this book? Um, but you got you to get this. This is really, really serious. And I mean, we got to learn from these things for our own culture today. I'll talk more about that next week. But I just want to kind of show you the context in chapter one in which this story was set. Um, but it's like, that doesn't work. <laughs> and so this crazy king uh, actually takes it a step further and is like, um, and we'll kind of talk about why it doesn't work here in a second. But the crazy king is like, okay, like if we can't kill them on the birth stool, uh, let's just start chucking the babies in the river. Um, and that way, if we don't get them as soon as they're born, we can at least get them at some point. And if you look at this in verse 22, it says, Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. And you can just try to think about this, right? Like that, could you imagine um, being like, hey, you know, like yesterday was a beautiful day. Hey, you know, we're going we're gonna to go down to REI might get a jacket because that's what we in Denver do and uh, go get a jacket and you walk down by the Platte River and there's people kayaking and there's people tubing and there's people throwing baby boys into the river um, and nobody calls the police because it's actually state approved. Um, It's like you don't even have anybody to call. It's like this is the context in which the exodus is set. It is the darkest of days. Uh, and, and I just, I'm not trying to 
draw this out more. I don't know if I can draw out the sadness of this enough. I don't think I can and really do it justice. But I think it's important for you to understand this because I think particularly about for those of you who maybe grew up in church um, and grew up in church that tended to like soften a lot of the realities of the Bible. Um, some of you think you know the Exodus story and you even can remember like when I was a kid, I made this like little grass basket for baby Moses and we put him in the water and it just was like a nice day at the lake, right? And it's like, no. <laughs> I mean, it, it was a mother just hoping, like, it was a mother leaving her baby in the water, believing this is, like, the best chance for his survival. Because this is the darkest of days. Now, the question is, is there any hope? <laughs> and what I love about Genesis, or, sorry, Exodus chapter 1 is it reflects that in the darkest of days, the God of light shines the brightest. It's like really important for you to believe this. I think particularly as you interpret our own culture. You know, it's, I think one of the things I love about our church is there's a lot of political diversity. There's a lot of diverse kind of concerns about what's going on in the world. But the common denominator that I see is a lot of concern and fear about the trajectory of the world and are things worse today than they've ever been before. I mean, one, people have always been really jacked up. Look at Exodus chapter 1. Um, but in particular, like what I want you to see is in the darkest of days, the God of light, he shines the brightest. Now, how does he do this? Well, he shines the brightest through two women, um, a woman named Shifra and a woman named Pua. Now, um, we're going to jump back up in the story and see, like, what in the world is it that they do? Uh, look at verse 17. So the king has just given this order, kill the boys, right? But the midwives, they feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Now, again, just pause here and feel the degree of courage of these two women, right? Like, they know this king is crazy. He is publicly killing babies. Like, do you not think that the guy who mandates the execution of children will also kill, will not also kill these two women for disobeying his orders? And so like, what's happening here is not just they're disobeying, but they understand that they're disobeying and probably signing their own death certificate. They're probably trying to save these children's life at the expense of their own lives. But fortunately, the king is stupid. Um, and so he's trying to like, why do all the boys keep living? They, 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 he asked them that in verse 18. The king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the children live? And then verse 19, the only sort of comedic relief in Exodus 1 is their explanation when they say, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife uh, comes to them. So it's like, yeah, you are supposed to laugh at that because it's so ridiculous where they're like, I don't know, we want to kill the children like you're saying to kill the children. But we walk in there and they're just like, boop, they're out. Like we thought we were going to be doing delivery, but it's like a 15 second thing and they're already swaddling that kid and I just don't know what to do. I'm sorry. And the king's like, Man, that's crazy, isn't it? And they're like, yeah, it is crazy. And, and, that's, and uh, But unfortunately, the king is stupid, but he also persists in sin. We don't want to be like the king, okay? He persists in sin, and he's not like, well, I should probably listen to this and probably stop killing children. But he, then he makes it public policy to say, well, let's just kill him afterwards then. That, that's a solution to this as well. Uh, we don't know a ton about these women. Uh, we don't even know, like, were they uh, from Israel? Were they Egyptian? There's kind of a debate about who they were. But the majority of people actually believe that they were Egyptian, um, that they kind of worked for the government. In fact, I'll, I'll read you one commentary on this, because I think it's just very fascinating. Uh, that says, Pua and Shifra are Egyptian names. Uh, Aben Ezra, the ancient Jewish historian, says that these two women were chiefs over all the midwives, who were more than 500. So this kind of posture is saying that these 
kind of a, these women of influence. They're leveraging their influence. They're very uh, kind of uh, significant in this entire organization. They're kind of fighting against this tremendously unjust system as well. Superintendents of such a large staff to which they had been appointed by the Egyptian government, Pharaoh ordered them to carry out this terrible command just as he would give orders to any of their other officials. As it is likely that only the chief Hebrews could afford the service of midwives, probably the order of Pharaoh only applied to them. Uh, although Egyptians by birth, it would seem that they had embraced the Hebrew faith, for we are told the Pua and Shifra feared God. And uh, these women are heroes. Um, you know, like we have a lot of babies born at our church. Um, it's kind of a popular thing in churches to like name babies after like Bible names, you know, um, particularly like little girls after Old Testament women's names. And so like we did this, my daughter's name is Hannah, and you have Ruth's and Rachel's and Rebecca's. And uh, this is my sort of pastoral executive order to mandate that we start having some shifras and some puas. And uh, I, I'm just demanding it right now. So um, whenever you're pregnant, shifra or pua is a fantastic name, um, at least a middle name. And some of you are like, hey, I know you're pregnant. And uh, are you going to do that? And it's like, well, I find out the gender tomorrow. And if it's a girl, I don't know what I'm going to do. So uh, <laughs> again, a middle name I think would work. I think would work uh, really, really well. But these women are awesome. They're, they're courageous. I, I love this because it's such a juxtaposition, especially for the way that women were trade around this period of time. I mean, like, there was a crazy patriarchal culture back in this day, particularly in Egyptian culture, where it's like, you have men, you have cattle, you have dogs, you have women. And here are women really held out, two women held out as the shining example of faithfulness uh, in really, really difficult, difficult times. And really not only that, but our window into like, how does the God of light uh, shine light in the midst of the darkest of days? Now, from their example, I, I wanna point you to three kind of simple implications uh, that I think we can start embodying in our own lives as we think about, okay, in our own kind of frightening, tragic days, whether it's both from a societal level or from an individual level, like you're just going through something really, really difficult right now. Uh, what is it that like, we practically do? And I think Shifra and Pua serve as a great example in three particular ways. So the first thing I want to point you to is just the lasting impact of normal faithfulness. The lasting impact of normal faithfulness. Um, and like, as you're trying to navigate kind of the injustice of the world from a corporate or individualistic level, maybe just ask the question, like, what is the one thing I can do right now that's right in front of me? What is the one thing I can do right now that's right in front of me. Because here's what's happened. In a cause-driven generation, in a cause-driven world, what happens is we get really kind of overwhelmed by the injustice of the world uh, for a diversity of reasons, right? On one hand, you scroll through your social media feed. Like, does some of you do this where you just lay on your side at night and you're just like flipping through Facebook and then you just get like sad and you're like, I'm okay, either sleeping or dying now. Uh, either of those. I mean, like, like, yeah, I think we've experienced that. Uh, or... From another extreme, you know, it's just like somebody recommends to you a documentary on Netflix about an issue going on in the world, and you watch it, and you get fired up about it, and then it's like, I'm going to fix this this week. And then you kind of overcommit, and you overpromise, and you underdeliver, and then, like, you don't follow through, and then you feel a lot of shame and really depressed because all of a sudden you're doing the thing that you proclaimed on Facebook to everybody else that you would never be doing again, whatever that might be. And I think that there's an example in these women of normal faithfulness, and normal faithfulness of what's right in front of us as being the means by which God can bring astounding redemption. It's amazing to me the degree that we almost like justify standing on the sidelines because either we feel like we can't do anything in the face of kind of everything that needs to be changed, 
Um, or we like sort of abdicate our responsibility to like what's in our own neighborhood in the name of causes that are maybe further away. Now, I'm not like, don't take that too far. I'm not saying like we shouldn't care about the nations. We can, shouldn't care about global causes. I don't think that whatsoever. I don't think we should also abdicate our responsibility next door because a lot of times it's easier to care about people over there as opposed to the person next door who's like annoying me a lot. And like these women just looking at what, okay, the state is mandated we kill babies. I'm not going to kill these babies. It's amazing. It's amazing faithfulness. Amazing courage. It's amazing the way that God uses his normal faithfulness to bring about an extraordinary supernatural impact. Now, that's kind of the second impact, uh, implication that we see from these women's example. Not just the lasting impact of normal faithfulness, but second, God's miraculous use of the normal. God's miraculous use of the normal. Uh, and maybe the question I was just thinking through this is like, why am I limiting my impact so much to my own capacity? Especially if you're a follower of Jesus, you believe in God, you believe that Jesus is who he says he is, he saved you. Uh, you in particular, uh, you, you have a worldview, an objective worldview that should not lead you to think this way. You should not limit your capacity and your normal faithfulness to like your own capacity. Because what we see from the example of Shifra and Pua is that God takes natural obedience and he blesses it to use it in supernatural ways. And just think about this, right? Okay, so like these women, I, I assume um, they're not under the assumption of like, well, we're gonna do this and then people will hear about it and then uh, it'll change the world and then a bunch of people in Denver, Colorado will be talking about us a few thousand years later. Right? I mean, they're just sort of anonymously, sacrificially, in a huge way, risking everything for the sake of obeying God. But how does God use that, right? I mean, even, like, it would have been very easy for them to be like, well, what can we do? I mean, they're killing lots of babies. Well, let's just kill these. Like, you know. But it's like, man, they're countercultural. What does God do? Okay, well, like, one of the next babies that they save is a boy named Moses. And Moses grows up. And he not only grows up, but he comes the one to deliver Israel from the bondage of slavery. And they go out, and they do become a great nation. And not only that, that this nation is preserved, but through this nation comes the person of Jesus Christ, who lives as we should have lived, so that we might be righteous before God, died as we should have died, so that we might be forgiven by God, resurrected in our place, so that we might be forgiven, or victorious over the greatest enemies of humanity, like Satan, like death, like sin, like hell. And just think about this. The reason that we're sitting in this room right now, in this moment, is because of the example of two women, Shifra and Pua. Isn't that nuts? You don't act like too excited about it. I mean, that's nuts, right? Like, like that's crazy. Even though we know their name. You know, it's like really funny because um, in the story of the Exodus, we know Shifra and Pua, and we don't know the Pharaoh's name. Now, it's funny to me because like uh, these like liberal scholars will be like, well, the reason they don't give that detail is because this didn't happen in real history to real people. It's like, no, Moses is making a point. It's like, here's this Pharaoh who's constructed his entire, yeah, all the power in the world right? And like, what do people want back then? I want to be known forever and none of us know his name. But you know Shifra and you know Pua and probably some of you will be crazy enough to name your child after them. <laughs> it's like, that's the supernatural work God does. That's the way he supernatural, supernaturally blesses normal faithfulness and normal obedience. And it's like, do not underestimate what it is that you can do because you feel small. You are small. We are small. But your impact is based upon the God who is infinite in nature. And he has like, done such a work that the fruit of these women's legacy is our church existing. Now, not only that, 
You see the lasting impact of normal faithfulness, God's miraculous use of the normal. Third and finally, God's specialization in times such as these. God's specialization in times such as these. And uh, maybe the question is like, in frightening times, in dark times, when it seems like the darkest of days, why am I paralyzed with fear instead of full of anticipation? Why in dark days am I paralyzed with fear as opposed to full of anticipation? And I was thinking about this this morning. It's like um, the darkest of days interpreted through the Exodus are less like the ocean and more like the mountains. Um, And here's the way I thought about this. I feel like we're adults in this room. We also can be vulnerable with one another. Like, aren't most of us afraid of the dark? Is that, or is it just me and I just like, (laughs) you're like, that guy's weird. I have no problem with the dark whatsoever. Don't shake your head at me. (laughs) It's like, come on. Like, you feel like a little bit nervous and a little bit, it's like, yeah, I've, feel that. Like, I want to be able to see things that are in front of me. But it's, like, really interesting, right? Like, sort of the circumstances of where that darkness is um, has kind of all the impact in terms of the way you interpret that. Like, am I fearful or am I kind of anticipatory in terms of what's going to happen? And you juxtapose this, like, the darkness in the ocean versus the darkness in the mountains. The darkness in the ocean is very, very frightening. Uh, Not that I've done deep sea diving, uh, but I have seen Finding Nemo because I have a three-year-old. And if any of you have ever seen Finding Nemo, you know, they get down and it's super dark and then they see that little light and then it's that like crazy fish that has a light bulb on its head that has jagged teeth as big as I am that just kills everything in its wake. And it's like because of that particular context in the ocean, uh, not only is the darkness very frightening, but the light is as well. But in mountains, here's the thing I love about Denver, is we know that the darkness we find in mountains actually builds a great sense of anticipation, right? There's a little bit of fear um, I was thinking about this when we did the men's uh, camp out a few months ago, and we did this like apparently bonding exercise where we like went around in the dark and did orienteering stuff. And I was like, I'm going to stumble across a hibernating bear, and I die this way. And I was so mad at Justin for planning this. <laughs> so there's this fear there, but there's also this anticipation of like, man, we're going to go to the mountains, and it's going to be dark, and we're going to be able to see the brilliance of the stars in a way we can't possibly see in the city because of light pollution. Like, isn't it, it's like a little bit scary, but it's just like, man, when you get into the right context, you like look up, and it's just, I don't know, I can't put it into words, right? You just have to kind of experience it and be like, oh, man, like the light, like the anticipation of the light in the midst of that darkness. And what you're seeing in Exodus chapter 1 is that you, in the darkest of days, even if you're like really scared about what's going on right now, I think there's a lot of valid reasons for a diversity of reasons to be really scared about the trajectory of the world. But I think you need to understand that in the darkest of days, God, the God of light specializes in times such as these. I think you need to believe that at a societal level. I think you need to believe that in an individualistic level. Because I think some of you have experienced tremendous darkness. You've suffered a lot. It's been a hard year. Walking through a lot of tragedy. And your assumption is, God has abandoned me, and he doesn't care about me, and, you know, like, this is the end. And it's like, no, no, no. Like, don't you understand why Moses put this in Exodus chapter 1? It's because the darkest of days, they're not the end, they're the beginning of the story. You understand that? Like, individually, societally, the darkest of days is not the end, it's not the final word. It is merely the beginning, and it's in the darkest of days that God of light shines the brightest and consequently like we almost like are nervous it's like okay to affirm the things in culture and individually that are broken but we engage that darkness with great anticipation that god our god of the bible our god who took the most tragic moment in the history of the world where his perfect sinless son is killed like he was a murderer 
and the most tragic moment in the history of the world, redeems that to accomplish the salvation of the very ends of the earth. That is the God who is writing the story. And the worst of days, the darkest of days, are not the end. It's merely the beginning. That's the context in which the Exodus is set. And it's going to get crazier. Uh, and I'm pumped to take this journey together. Now, uh, before we end, uh, I want to pray. But I want to pray with kind of asking God to do three particular things uh, through us this year, through this series. And so um, if we want to just go, what is it that we're asking God to do? Uh, in this coming year through this series. Three big things, and I'm going to pray for this now as we get ready to respond, and I would encourage you, even if you want to write these down, these are regular things you're praying for you and for us as a community. Uh, So for the first thing that we're praying is that through the book of Exodus, we would be given a huge vision for the character and nature of God. Uh, Again, we've talked about this before. American culture reduces God to kind of a buddy or a sissy in the corner, wringing his hands, sort of hoping that we make the right decisions. Um, That is not the God of Exodus. The God of Exodus is guiding the course of history in the affairs of nations and the hearts of kings for the joy of his people and for the fame of his name. And we need to reclaim that vision of who God is. Secondly, I pray that we get a deeper burden for the plight of the oppressed. Um, One of the consistent themes in the book of Exodus is not just that like, We care for people who have less than us or are marginalized because it's like a nice thing to do or it makes us good people, but it's a reflection of our understanding of the character and nature of God. And actually in the history of the world, the marginalized is sort of the camp to which God has gone. Um, There's more than just like it's a nice thing to do. It's an understanding of like the identification of God with the people who are being oppressed and systemically killed. Um, and the way that we look at people like that um, is a reflection, in a lot of ways, our understanding of the gospel as well. And so I just pray in a really healthy way, in a God-honoring way, um, we would be really concerned about the marginalized and the oppressed. Third and finally, a uh, greater appreciation of the salvation offered to us in Christ. Uh, now, probably the craziest thing about the Exodus, there's a lot of crazy things, but is if you read forward in the New Testament, uh, the Exodus is portrayed as sort of a uh, almost like a shadow of what's to come in the person, the work of Jesus, and the salvation he wins in your life. Now, we would think it's the other way, right? Like, I have my own sort of religious experience with God, and it kind of in some small ways reflects the way that he guides the courses of nations and what he did in Egypt. It's like, no, it's the other way around. The magnitude of what God has done specifically and individually in your life through Christ, or wants to if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, that's the fulfillment That's the end goal. Like, all of what he did in Egypt is pointing to a greater fulfillment in the work of Jesus for you. And what we're going to see is that Jesus Christ is the true and better Passover lamb who accomplishes the true and better exodus from our sin. And gosh, I like, I pray that you would regain a huge vision of what it is that God has done in your life. It is um, so sad to me that in American culture, we think of Christianity and even people who take their faith seriously see their salvation as really being no big deal. It's just like, well, I grew up in America and I guess I just kind of believe this thing by default and I grew up in a Christian home and I just woke up this morning and I decided to start following Jesus. No, that is so wrong. 
like the magnitude of what God has done for you in the gospel is actually truer and better than what God even accomplished in Egypt. And that should floor us. And it should give us just even a practical confidence in this coming week because some of you are scared and you're hurting and you're suffering and you're going to go through hard things this week and you wonder if God's big enough and if he's for you and he cares for you and that's who God is. He's not some distant deity wringing his hands at the evil of the world. He is the God of the Exodus and I can't wait to sort of explore the hugeness and the goodness of who he is for us. All right, let's pray. God, we thank you so much for who it is that you are, what it is that you've done, and uh, we do thank you for the journey of being able to walk through uh, this book of the Bible together and this incredible story. I pray that it would change us and impact us, and uh, please, please um, use this story uh, to shape us in the ways that we're asking, that we would get a huge vision of who it is that you are. Please, just destroy the small understandings of you that are culturally imposed upon us and not a reflection of your character and nature as reflected by the, script, by the scriptures. God, I th- pray that um, you would give us a heart for the marginalized and oppressed. Uh, we would see that through the gospel that we were the weakest of the weak. Um, we are not intrinsically better than anybody else around us, that we have all universally committed the greatest atrocity, which is sinning against the God that gave us the very breath that fills our lungs. And I pray that your kindness towards us would stir up a humility and kindness towards others who are hurting. And uh, we would reflect the gospel uh, really in the ways that we're going to see unfold in the Exodus. And finally, God, uh, we pray for a uh, greater appreciation of the magnitude and the immensity of your salvation, um, what you've extended to us. And I pray that we would marvel this story and be really um, have our mind blown by the types of things that you do to save your people And understand this is not just a story, it's our story. It's my story. And it feels almost illogical to say that, but at this moment we exercise the faith and we ask even when we can't believe to help our belief and to help our unbelief uh, so that we might rightly believe the magnitude of what it is that you've done in and through us, through the work of Jesus. Please bless that, produce that in your people through the power of your spirit. And we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.